Welcome to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast, brought to you by Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. Here we share information about farm practices, pulse markets, research outcomes and market development efforts, and much more. My name is Sarah Anderson, and I am one of the agronomy managers with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Diane Knight, Professor of Soil Science at the University of Saskatchewan, College of Agriculture and Bioresources, as well as a Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture co-chair of the Strategic Research Program in Soil Biological Processes. The overall focus of her program is to develop innovative solutions to the problems facing today's producers, focusing on biological aspects of the soil, water and plant continuum as they relate to nutrient cycling and the efficient use of nutrients by plants. Dr. Knight, thank you for joining us today. We want to discuss soil sampling methods, nutrient management, and of course, how pulses fit into everything. So really excited to have you here oh, with thank us you. today. It's fun to be here. Well, I guess with that, we'll, we'll just uh, get started. Um, first and foremost, to kind of set, set the stage, why should growers consider soil sampling this fall or maybe in, in general? Just in general, there's kind of different reasons for soil sampling, and I think you need to know as you know, as producer um, what it is that you want to get out of your soil sampling. Most of the time, uh, producers are soil sampling for fertility so that it can uh, sort of give them an idea of fertilizer um, applications, sort of rates of fertilizers that can apply in the in the next year. Um, but you can also so soil sample just to get an idea of how your farm and how your soil is doing. And that's becoming a little bit more common because people are really um, hearing a lot more about um, soil building and soil health. And it's just a way of monitoring um, how your farm or how your field on a, uh, your farm is, is doing in terms of, of soil health. Yeah, like when we get talking about it, I'll talk about sort of both of these two different reasons for doing some continually soil sampling your your fields. Perfect. Actually, that maybe walks us right into the next uh, phase okay. of the questions of, of um, what are the, the most common soil sampling methods used in SASC agriculture and maybe the pros and cons of some of these various methods? Could you walk us through that, Diane? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a researcher, so we do all sorts of like high-tech funky um, soil sampling, but it's not what most farmers would ever do. So there's lots and lots of different approaches that you can take, but I'm only gonna talk about just a couple of them that are really the most uh, applicable to producers on their own farms. So like as a, as a researcher, we'll often do grid sampling where you'll grid out a field and take like 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 samples, but it gets really really, really expensive for a producer to do that. So that's not what we would normally um, recommend. For farmers, again, you need to kind of know whether what you're what you want to get out of this soil sampling. So are you looking for fertility information or are you looking for sort of benchmarking where your soil is at and then going back and resampling? So for nutrient sampling on a field level, <laughs> what we recommend, and that's what you want to do, you want to sort of get an average nutrient status 
for a particular field. So all we recommend is that you take what we call a composite sample. And that's a single sample, or actually two samples, which I'll get into in a minute, that are representative sort of of the entire field. So you can imagine you're standing out there, you're looking at a field, well, oh my goodness, it's huge. Where do I take these samples from? So I think it should be apparent to people that you don't just take a single sample, you need to get a whole bunch of them. So stuff that you'll need is a bucket, some way of sampling the soil. So whether you have a, an auger, but you can actually do it with a hand trowel or, or a shovel as well. And um, probably a, a bag or some way of um, transferring your, your subsample. For a, I'm going to start with a sort of a level field, which aren't very common, but they do exist in some regions. And what we'd, we'd recommend is taking probably about 15 to 20 individual holes or samples across that field and then mixing them all together. And what we do is that we will, um, we, we walk in a what we call a W pattern or either a Z pattern across the field. So you can imagine that you're walking up one uh, side of the W and then up, changing direction, changing direction, and then changing direction again. And on each one arm, we're taking five to seven samples that are spaced sort of regularly, but it's not really important that they're super regularly. Every 10 steps every 15 sort of paces along that field, stopping, getting a sample, putting it in your bucket, and then continuing on. The reason that we don't want to do a straight line, which is what we're tempted to do, is that there's often things that are linear in fields that are man-made. So there might have been a fence line a long time ago that you don't even know was there, or maybe there was a, a, a cattle pathway that the cows always went this one road in order to get to their watering station. Um, so we want to avoid lines and that's why we do these zigzag patterns. So for each hole, we want to actually take two samples. So you're going to have two buckets with you, uh, a zero to six inch and a six to 12 inch. And these will be kept separately, like all of the 15 or 20 samples of the zero to sixes will go in one bucket and all of the six to 12s will go into another bucket. And, um, and so you get all your samples in there after you do your zigzag across the field, mix them up really, really well. And it's really important to mix really well or else you're not going to get a representative sample. And then take the scoops out into the bag that you will get from your soil testing lab. Um, and that's what you'll submit your sample in. And there's a bunch of information that you need to fill out on the bag, but it's pretty, pretty self-apparent what it is. That is for a flat field, which many farms don't have flat fields. So they'll have these hummocky, hilly um, uh, landscapes that we're dealing with. And in that case, you kind of want to pick where you're taking your soil samples from, and there's kind of two approaches you can take. 
oftentimes when you're looking at the, if you want an average for that field you can imagine that you don't want to just go down to the low positions the depressions because that's where soils erode to and so you'll have a buildup of soil in these depressional areas so instead you want to make sure that you're sampling all of the different types of landforms so if there's a, a knoll it might be quite eroded and not very fertile but that's still part of your landscape so you're going to sample your knolls your uh, depressional areas and then probably somewhere in the um, hill hill slope region as well so you kind of are doing it a little bit more directed to make sure that that sample has all of the components of your field sometimes rather than doing just the like doing all three the the knolls the hill slopes and the depressional areas um we some farmers will only uh sample the hill slopes the the sloped region and those tend to be sort of average so they're a little they're a bit of a mix between the depressions and the the um, hilltop areas so that's an okay approach i think doing all three elements would be better but if you're if it's easier for you uh, for whatever reason that that's pretty acceptable as well and again you're going taking 15 to 20 samples different holes and mixing them together into the uh, in your buckets and then sending your soil sample away. Perfect. So just to clarify in that second approach that you went through a little bit more landscape directed, are you combining various mid slopes with other mid slopes across the field or are you selecting one benchmark location across those different landscapes or you're you're typically mixing the all of the hill slopes you can do it actually you can do the hilltops the slopes and the depressions as separate soil samples if you're really keen and want to and maybe looking at precision farming as an option or something like that or you can mix them all together as a single sample um, and that just gives you representation from all of the different landforms in there gotcha Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Definitely seems like we have a lot of uh, pick your own adventure when it comes yeah, absolutely. to soil sampling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So how how um, does a grower, you mentioned this, right? We want to really focus on what the grower wants to get out of it, but how do you narrow down what the best soil sampling method is for, for you and your farm? For you and your farm, okay. Um, I would say that the landscape is going to, really dictate how you're going to actually sample and that that I was describing just now for the hill the hilly one and the flat one is for nutrient sampling so that is if you want to get fertilizer recommendations or if you're an organic producer you want to just get an idea of the fertility and maybe you want to tweak your management and grow some more legumes that would be um, that type of sampling if you're wanting more to get an idea of how your farm is doing in terms of soil building then we would probably pick an area on your farm and resample that so a benchmark and resample that over and over and over again so that we can see is my organic matter increasing is it decreasing in that case 
you want to um, pick an area that is typical for that field. And in which case, you don't want to be near a shelter belt, for example. You want to be out from the edges of the field. So you pick an area that you just kind of, well, that looks like a good area for whatever reason. And that one, you might just um, sample an area that's a meter or a couple of meters and take maybe eight or 10 cores out. And then you wanna make sure that you know where that is. So GPS it, um, back in the olden days when I first started, we would bury pieces of metal under there and then go out with a, a metal detector to find that exact area where we were. Um, and then you'd go back and resample that area. So again, you're not going into exactly the same hole, but you're in this um, roughly the same one or two meter area that you're going to. And that kind of sampling is more for how is my farm in general doing in terms of organic matter building? And, and so it's not for nutrient management per se. Okay. If you had several benchmarks across across a field is that something that you could use to start building a nutrient management plan or you would maybe um, you could but i think that the 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 more general sampling for that is better and as you do it more and more and more then you build up this sort of database and you have a really good idea what happens on your farm because nothing like i i can't tell you without knowing anything about your soil like what's going to happen specifically on your farm right the you know how much moisture you get what you're growing like all sorts of things feed into it so it makes it pretty challenging Right. Um, you had also mentioned um, being able to maybe create a prescription or a precision fertility plan. Can you do that with any of these soil sampling methods or are there certain ones that are more aligned uh, to precision? More in line and it's more of an industry now that I don't even feel very capable of talking about, to be quite honest. It, like there's a lot more to it than, than just the soil sampling. So lots of aerial photography and things like that as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And in terms of uh, just errors, right? Like how do we get the best representative? You mentioned representative a couple times. How do we ensure that what we're taking of those cores is representative of what gets analyzed at the lab? Is there kind of some watch outs? Well, I've, I've mentioned a couple and that is don't go in a transect across your land because your chance five times out of 10, you're going to hit some weird line that's in your field of a, an old fence line thing looks like that. And also we're all inherently lazy. <laughs> so you kind of want to make sure you're getting your 20 samples because, you know, um, the more that you combine in there, the more representative it is. But you have to be sensible about it. Like you, you're not going to go out and dig a hundred holes for it, right? Like it just, um, but making sure that you're getting that 15 to 20 samples because people want to just, well, I've done 10. That should be enough or eight should be. Yeah, last year I did 20. This year I'm going to do 10. So I think those are the biggest things that it's just human nature, right? To sort of skimp a little bit. Sure. <laughs> like you said, these And farmers are busy, right? Yes. You know, they're busy. <sighs> Absolutely. Um, 
So how how frequently should growers be soil sampling? Like you kind of mentioned two different ones if we're making fertility plans. Is that something that growers should be aiming to do every single year? I in the beginning I would say yes until you start to understand how your soil is is responding to things and so like the more you do it and the more you look at them the more they give you sort of a a a picture of how your farm or that field um reacts to dry heat you know things like that all of those environmental things so some year you might say oh it was really really dry this year we put a whole bunch of fertilizer on i bet that that fertilizer is still sitting in the field um, because there was really poor plant growth because it was dry but you start to get experience so that you can then maybe do it every couple of years rather than every single year but i you know if you can if you have the time and the resources to do it i would suggest it every year that's for fertility for the benchmarking and the how is my farm doing in terms of soil health um less often is needed um the biggest thing that you're looking at for that kind of soil sampling is um, organic matter is one of the things that you're going to be keeping the biggest eye on. Our soils, even though we know we've depleted organic matter a lot, like since farming began 120 years ago, um, we still have pretty high organic matter contents in our soil. So we're trying to measure kind of small changes against a big background of organic carbon so it'll often take five years even longer in some regions 10 years before we can actually see any difference in our organic matter contents so in that case i'm going to say three to five years depending on what area you're in is probably um, enough for that benchmark sampling on those areas that you've GPSed or that you can go back and do over and over again. Sorry if this is touching on a different topic, but for soil health uh, tests, is there more that we should be looking at? There is, but the... It's kind. Of, it's hard. Like soil health. What does that mean, right? Like it's it's sort of one of those nebulous terms that nobody's. Even I am not entirely sure what it means. Um, so labs don't really. There are labs that will do tests for soil health, but most of your soil testing labs aren't at that point yet. So the best I think we can do today is organic matter, keeping an eye on it, looking at salinity, pHs. Is your pH increasing, decreasing? Why is it changing? pH is one of those things that doesn't change a lot. So if it is, you might want to figure out what it is that you're doing that's causing it to. So you kind of look at everything, but organic matter is the biggest one. That's, yeah, really, really good advice and, and kind of to set the expectation not to be alarmed if it doesn't change the next year. Yes. You go back to your again, yes. or your benchmark. It won't, I'll guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually, yeah, sets us into the, the next theme. So once that soil sample is collected, it's sent to the lab, you've kind of done everything right there, the lab analyzes it, and the results are back. What type of information can we expect? Okay, so 
most labs have roughly the same information that they deliver to you. And I actually, for this, I printed off two different ones so that I can just sort of glance at them. Um, they're the, the basic information, so they all report what they call soil test characteristics. And it might be under a different title depending on what lab you send it to. But it's things like pH, electrical conductivity, which is called EC on your soil test. Um, uh, the most of them have a salinity rating um, and some texture measurement for you. So loam, sandy loam, something like that, and then nutrients. And they're all sort of presented in slightly different ways, uh, depending on what lab it is that you're you're dealing with. It's consistent across all labs, but can you take that same analysis and compare the two to each Not other? Not necessarily directly. They'll have this, and, and the reason is that they will use, they might use different ways of extracting nutrients. And those will modify the actual number that you get. It'll, 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 yeah. So, so generally, yes, but not on a on a small level, because I, I know that one of the labs uses a Kelowna method for phosphorus, and most labs use what we call the Olson P method, and that's going to influence the actual number that you get back from the lab. Okay. Okay. Right. Perfect. Was there anything else you wanted to cover on? just the results that you get back? Um, I just wanted to, yeah, I think not on the results, but on, on expectations, right? Um, so depending on where you are in the province, you can only achieve what that area will let you achieve. And I'm talking mostly about organic matter. So when we're down in the organic matter building in the soil depends on how much growth you can get, how much um, residue is returned back into the soil. So in the brown soil zone, it's really limited by water and, and heat. So you don't have, you can't build organic matter to the same extent as you could in the moist black soil zone that's much north or uh, farther north. Also, if you have a sandy soil, it's really hard to build organic matter in a sand. So be realistic about what you have. So, you know, if you have 2% organic matter in a brown soil zone, you're not ever going to get up to the 5% or, or it's very unlikely you will. I guess it's not what that region will hold for you. Okay, excellent. Yeah, kind of judging judging within your own farm and your own soil zone and, yeah. and things like that. Perfect. Yeah. Often I think we wonder how quickly we can evaluate the rotational effect. So say we soil sampled uh, a field that grew pure lentils this year. Is there anything that would stick out necessarily when we analyze those results after? Well, in the, it'll, it'll depend a little bit about on whether you're going to soil sample in the fall or in the spring. Most people okay. do it in the fall. But if you do it in the spring, you're actually got a little bit more accurate measurement because that residue has been on the field all winter. It's broken down because of freeze and thaw cycles, and it's been exposed more to microbial degradation for a longer period of time. So with um, peas, 
normally in the fall, you're not really going to see much different than you would see from a, a wheat wheat growing there. But if you sampled it in the spring, when some of it has had an opportunity to decompose, you might actually start to see a little bit higher nitrogen than you would see on other um, from other uh, cereal crops or oil seed crops. But it's really weather dependent it's really soil zone dependent as well so i wouldn't like don't hold your breath <laughs> like it may you may or may not see it but yeah uh, over time you will start to see a buildup from that nitrogen that's being um, repeatedly deposited in the soil through the organic residues okay perfect so not to be alarmed if we sample right away and we're expecting that that big end boost, um, it just might not be enough time. Yeah. In and, and you don't, you, in a way, not measuring the end boost is sort of good because um, you ideally you want that nitrogen to be supplied the next year during the growing season of whatever your crop is. And if it's, if it's boosted too early in the spring, it's subject to all sorts of losses. So we'll be getting, you know, nitrate leaching, possibly denitrification, which is the gassing off of, of some of the nitrogen. So it's okay to not see the boost and you want to see the boost in your crop, not in the soil. Excellent. Um, anything particular that we'd be looking at if we took a soil test for a field that was planned on being peas or lentils? Is there anything different relative to other crops that we're looking for? Well, you... If we're going to plant it to pea? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what, ideally what we want is to put that pea into a rotation sequence where the nitrogen's low. So you don't want to be seeding a, a pulse crop, a lentil, you know, chickpea, peas into a high-ish nitrogen soil. And the reason for that is that Given the choice of fixing nitrogen through those little nodules or taking up nitrogen through the roots, they're going to take up nitrogen through the roots. So you're going to get less of a V advantage um, of the nitrogen fixing capabilities of the, the pulse crop. So that's kind of what you're looking for. But you also, um, we always think about pulses and nitrogen. We also need to make sure that the other nutrients are there for the pulses. So phosphorus is absolutely essential for nitrogen fixation. So for roots developing, for nodules, for all of that energy. So ATP um, is that energy form and it is mostly phosphorus. So people forget about that and they think that that pulses are just like these magic crops that we don't really need to fertilize. And you really, really make sure, have to make sure that there's other nutrients there. And in terms of, um, and they're a little fussier maybe than some of the other crops about micronutrients as well. So they need um, iron. Uh, so um, you might wanna, you know, take a quick look at some of your micronutrients. They are almost always fine but if you're finding something's a little funky in your pea fields and they're not fixing properly take a look at some of the micronutrients magnesium calcium um, iron are, are uh, essential for proper nitrogen fixation as well so that hemoglobin the heme that's in uh, the red 
pigmentation that's in the, the nodules of, of uh, pulses is their blood. And it's just like our blood, how we have to have iron for our blood. They need iron for their blood um, and for them to fix nitrogen as well. I think that's cool. So. <laughs> I think so, too. Yeah, there's a lot that that little pulse plant is doing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're like these little little factories under the ground. They're quite amazing. Absolutely. Um, is there any downside uh, other than, you know, we want our pulse crops to be fixing their own nitrogen, but hypothetically, your only option is to put it on a high end residual field. What debt does that have any agronomic detriment to that pulse crop? No, it'll it'll be fine, and it might even be a slightly better than sometimes when it is fixing nitrogen, just because it does have that easy nitrogen source. There's no there's the the advantage. Um, comparing it to a non-pulse is that you're not going to have to add any more fertilizer to it. So even you might be starting on a high nitrogen soil, it's going to take up that nitrogen and probably at some point it'll switch over, the nodules will develop and it'll start fixing. So you're going to be able to grow the crop all the way through to maturity without any nitrogen, any, any additional nitrogen added. Whereas if you're growing wheat on that, it might have high nitrogen, but it's not enough nitrogen to sustain the whole life cycle. So you're going to be fertilizing it. So no, it's not a bad thing. It's just that you're not quite getting the advantage of the fixation. Yeah. Right. Right. So if that crop does have access to high nitrogen, but not enough, like right, peas and lentils do take a lot of nitrogen. Even if it didn't start the nodulation process early in the season, will it pick up that later in the season if it runs low of nitrogen? As long as the organisms, the rhizobium are there and it's moist enough and all the other nutrients are okay, it, it will. And even when there is nitrogen there, like some nitrate, residual nitrate in the soil, um, there will be some nodules that are likely to develop because they kind of are uh, really smart <laughs> in a way. And, you know, you sort of attribute these characteristics to them. But um, wherever a root is, not all, like the soil doesn't have this homogeneous supply of nitrogen all through it. Like it's in little pockets and it moves around, but it's still not all the same. And some roots will be in low nitrogen zones and some roots will be in high nitrogen zones. And those low nitrogen roots will start to develop nodules. And it, I think it's, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that it's a bit of a, a fail safe for that legume so that, okay, if we use it all up, then we've got this and we're ready to go. Um, most uh, fixation um, occurs right around flowering or we're just at the end of the vegetative state and flowering. And most of the time, any residual nitrogen in the soil has been used up for that vegetative growth. So they probably do want to fix and will have those nodules fixing at that flowering stage. Perfect. At the beginning of the interview, we had or you had mentioned uh, like a zero to six and then a six to 12. Specific to nitrogen and, and end fixation, do we need to be measuring nitrogen further in the soil profile or for pulses is a foot 
pretty good. A foot is fine for pul- for most pulses. I would say, um, yeah, because especially for pulses, because it sort of doesn't matter in a way how much nitrogen is there because they have their own way, right? If we're looking at other crops, you might want to go a little deeper if they tend to be really deep-rooted, but but I don't think for pulses, I haven't really thought about that before, but I don't think it would really, uh, I don't think we'd want to go further. It's really hard to soil sample deeper than 12, yeah, <laughs> 12 inches too. So. That's um, maybe our handheld augers and yeah, our, yeah, our exactly. trowels aren't going to cut it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you've touched on this kind of throughout our conversation, but just wanting to dig in a little bit deeper. Um, what are the soil nutrient benefits of having those pulses in rotation? You mentioned mineralization and, and just wondering if you could kind of expand on that, that seed and ratio. Seed and ratios. Okay. So, yeah, microbiology 101 here. So what we see to ratios is the ratio of carbon to nitrogen in um, the plant residues and the nodules and the um, things that the pulses excrete from their root systems. And when we have uh, low numbers, it means that there's lots of nitrogen relative to the carbon. So, um, you know, Uh, A number of uh, 12 to 1 is better than, not better, but different than a number of 40 to 1. So 12 to 1 would be more typical, and that's not even a good example. More like 20 to 1 would be a good example for a pulse crop, whereas wheat would be something like 40 to 1. Okay. So just so that people know what I'm talking about. And that means that there's more nitrogen. So what happens with the microorganisms is that they're like eating the residues that are in the soil, the roots and and, um, leaves and things like that. And when there's a lot of carbon in the sample, so with a, a big number, they're that there's way more carbon than nitrogen and they keep eating and eating and eating and eating trying to get as much nitrogen as they can to balance off the energy source from the carbon when there's not when there's more nitrogen they don't have to eat as much in a way and they they're able to turn it over much more quickly so when it gets tied up in the bodies of the organisms because they haven't reached their nitrogen quota yet we call that immobilization and when there's more nitrogen around and they don't have to eat very much that those little bodies reach their nitrogen quota and then they start to actually die and turn over and that nitrogen becomes more available and that's what we call mobilization so that that nitrogen becomes much more available for whatever's growing there um, way faster with most pulse crops than it will with a cereal crop for example so those c to n ratios of the pulse crops are really what's driving um, that um, mobilization of the nitrogen. It's hard to explain without diagrams and stuff, but I hopefully that's sort of clear for people. Absolutely. No, thank you for that that overview. I think it's one of these things we talk about in in pulse crop agronomy, but it, it takes a minute to, to really get that explanation. So yeah. d- does that have any um, subsidiary effects to other soil nutrients? Like 
the microbial activity, do we see an increased mineralization of other soil nutrients, or is it really the nitrogen that we're talking about? It's interesting because we only seem to ever talk about C to N ratios, but a C to P ratio will be what drives phosphorus um, turnover as well. And we don't think of it with other nutrients, but more recently people are starting to look at these ratios of things a little bit more. And it's, yeah, so the nitrogen itself, yeah, we're going to have those organisms turning over faster, that nitrogen is going to be released. Nitrogen is not in there all by itself, right? There's other nutrients, so they're also going to be released uh, as well. And it depends a, a bit on how um, how green or how brown the materials are. So when we're talking about green manures, we're, we're digging in uh, materials that are very, very wet and young, and they have and their nitrogen turns over really fast. And then as they get older and more lignified and more more uh, fibrous, then they break down a little bit slower. So, and that that is also the case with um, pulse crops. So those older residues are going to break down a little slower than younger residues are. Okay, I have a, a bit of a follow-up question on um, volunteer pea and lentils. So sometimes in our really dry brown soil zone, harvest is coming off really early. Um, we have throwover opportunity for volunteer um, on that field and where they get a good chunk of sort of going into that fall season and ability for regrowth. Is that sort of a net positive from the nutrient cycling that we just discussed, or is it something that could be using up water on that field? What's should we be thinking about terminating those volunteers or letting them freeze off? What's um, myself usually let them freeze off. Okay. That would be usually. Um, if you're in a particularly super dry area, you might want to terminate them. But he, uh, people have done some studies looking at um, not that specifically, but green manures. And if you if you terminate them really late, do they use up way more water and suckle the water out? And and the answer is kind of no. Okay. Like they, we like intuitively we think they do, but in the big scheme of things, they're not really using much more water than you would see being evaporated off in a fallow system, for example. So, so generally letting them grow, they will probably fix some nitrogen and that nitrogen, um, even if it's just nitrogen that's been taken up from the soil, it's tied up in this organic form that'll protect it from leaching and um, denitrification for a while as well, too. So organic forms of things are often just better than inorganic forms. They protect um, nutrients from um, being lost to the environment. Hey, excellent. Thank you for that that context. Yeah, I think it's a it can become a bit of a debate, um, especially if weed control isn't part of the equation. So yeah, that's uh, good to know. And this you've built on this, but kind of the big crux, I think, of our discussion is how does you know soil sampling and pulses in general in rotation fit into building uh, a nutrient management plan 
on someone's farm? Big question. <laughs> Big question. So to me, anything that's kind of free is like yeehaw. <laughs> and that's how I think we need to sort of um, approach nitrogen fixation is that we are getting free nitrogen from the air that we're not paying for <laughs> fertilizer. So I recommendations are to include pulse crops in some form on your field every three or four years of a rotation. And, you know, I'm a pulse researcher. I want people to do that more than that. But realistically and economically, I think that that's a really good goal. And like people are starting to grow cover crops a lot more or companion crops um, with things and that's and many of those companion crops are pulses that can fix nitrogen just get some of that nitrogen into the soil um, another thing and i've been talking about sort of organic forms of um, nutrients being more protected and more and more I think we need to pay attention to um, practices that are going to minimize greenhouse gas emissions as well. I'll just sneak this in, even though I know that's not what we're talking about. And pulses are, are a pretty good way uh, of getting nutrients into an organic form that protects them a bit, not completely, um, from denitrification and um, carbon dioxide emissions and things like that. So I, I think. I think pulses have a really good position in rotations. They're not the be all and end all, like nothing is, there's no magic bullet, right? But very consciously trying to get that nitrogen into your soil through a, a non-fertilizer way, I think is, is only a good thing. Excellent. Yeah, I think you've touched on it, but you would say that soil sampling plus pulses in rotation, they're definitely a sustainable yeah. piece of management in that regard. Yeah, and so with soil sampling specifically, the more you know, the better you can respond. Okay. So, and, I, and that's really what we're trying to do with um, soil sampling is get to know your soil, get to know your farm, know what is reasonable for that particular field. So it's not a, a, a you do it once and you you're good at it and know everything. Like I still puzzle over some of the soil tests that we get and, huh, why did that happen? Like, why is this that this year? So. Is there, yeah, I could, I could sit and pepper you with questions <laughs> the, the rest of the morning, Diane, but is there anything else you want to add or, or leave as parting advice to growers and agronomists as they're building those pulse rotations or soil sample plans? Not really. Like just, you know, you, yeah. If you're, if you're afraid of the pulses, just try them. Like I think that farmers are just so innovative. So figure out ways that work for you to get that free nitrogen onto your, into your fields. Um, yeah. And if you, you know, you hear of something, give it a try. Don't try things, don't try new things on a wide scale. Try a little bit so that you're not, if they don't work, then you can say, well, I'm not doing that again. So, you know, and that's just advice for anything that you're trying that's new on your farm. So, Absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. That wraps up our discussion today. I, I want to give you a big thank you to Dr. Diane Knight for joining us. And thank you to everyone for tuning into this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss upcoming episodes. To stay up to date with SBG, you can subscribe to our mailing list on our website. We send regular updates, keeping you informed on global markets, new technologies, and trends in Pulse production. Thank you for tuning into Pulse of the Prairies podcast. <laughs>